0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week we continue learning about Americans in the war and ride with Christian de Wet as he scurries back across the Orange River, his attempts at invading the Cape ending in failure. There are also unusual peace moves afoot, and a meeting between Lord Kitchener and Boer General Louis Botha takes place. First, the small matter of George Labram, the De Beers' company mine engineer extraordinaire. Even by the standards of the day, his manufacturing ability and constant innovation must rank as some of the most creative examples of how to use engineering skills in the midst of war. He, of course, wasn't the first innovator to help a town under attack. For example, Archimedes' brilliant use of a crane and claw to overturn attackers' boats during the siege of Syracuse in 212 BCE. The point is, inventors and warfare go well together. And in Kimberley, the American Labram was able to concoct a number of brilliantly fashioned innovations. Unfortunately, he came to a rather messy end, as you'll hear. Born into poverty in Detroit, Michigan in 1859, George Labram's education was spotty, but his sister remembered that his spare time was taken up with books on machinery and engineering. In his mid-teens, he went to work for a local machinery manufacturer and eventually secured a better job in Chicago. Then he moved to the Silver King Mining Company in Arizona. Later, and after a stint running a copper mine, he was spotted at the famous Chicago World Fair in 1893 when De Beers Consolidated Mines hired him to build and operate a mine in Kimberley, South Africa. By the start of the Boer War, De Beers' Kimberley diamond fields were producing 92% of the world's diamonds, Within three years, he had built an entirely new way of processing diamonds, and by 1898, he became the company's chief mechanical engineer. He thought of himself as a Cape citizen, a citizen of South Africa, and was sensitive to political developments in his adopted country. Labram realized war was inevitable and sent his young wife and son to Cape Town, then awaited the start. Because Kimberley was eight kilometers from the Free State border, he knew it would be targeted all the more so because arch-colonial Cecil John Rhodes literally owned the town and lived in it. We've already covered Kimberley and the siege, so let's move quickly along to Labrum's incredible innovations. He was well-liked and could keep a secret, which meant both Rhodes and the British commander Kekovic trusted him with important information. Ironically, Kekovic and Rhodes hated each other, The American was credited with being the only man who remained friendly with both men simultaneously and hence kept a measure of peace between them, the American keeping the peace between the two British. Some in the town found this diplomacy a surer sign of his genius than was his incomparable mechanical ability. And the latter was legendary. When the siege began, the Boers seized control of a crucial water pumping station north of town. Faced with a water famine at the heart of the devastating South African summer, Labram countered by improvising a way to hook up De Beers' private water supply with the town system. When artillery ammunition began to run out after a month of siege in November 1899, Labram spoke up at a staff meeting. Could he have a look at the shell? He was handed one, squinted at it, and said, I guess I can make things like these all right. Working in the De Beers' shops, He devised his own fuse, found a suitable mixture of industrial blasting powder and fine-grained sporting gunpowder, and soon was turning out between 60 and 70 shells a day. They worked amazingly well, but, as one disgruntled citizen said, the British had only a few seven-pound guns capable of hurling walnuts that cracked thousands of yards short of the Boer positions. With this in mind, Rhodes asked Labram if he had ever built a cannon, Only as a boy, said the American, when he built one for the 4th of July to celebrate the time we licked the British. Rhodes must have been somewhat taken aback as an avowed Anglophile. Well, said Rhodes, build one now to celebrate the time you are to save the British. Labram disappeared into the De Beers' shops on Christmas Eve with his pencil, and two days later work began using stock metal, and in less than a month, Labram and his men managed to forge a fine breech-loading rifled cannon with a four-inch bore capable of throwing a 28-pound shell further than any Boer cannon. Christened Long Cecil, the gun went into action on January 19, with Labram himself in charge of a crew drawn from the men who had built it. The first target was the captured water pumping station, a full 8,000 yards away. Labram scored a direct hit. As the earth geezered around them, the Boers scattered, astonished. Little did Labram know that he'd also created a weapon the Boers were to counter and lead to him losing his life. As a scientist, Labram would have known that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. In February, and in retaliation, the Boers had brought up one of their long toms, a six-inch creosote gun manned by a team of French mercenaries, which fired a 96-pound shell. As this formidable weapon opened up on the town, Labram replied with long Cecil, shifting the gun from place to place. His gaunt, quick-moving frame, one De Beers official recalled, and deliberate nasal accents as conspicuous as his loose civilian dress among the dapper uniforms. The American civilian actually succeeded in checking, to a degree, the fire of Europe's finest artillerists. But the fighting was beginning to tell on him. On the evening of February 9th, a friend met Labram coming in from a day on the lines, his face pale with strain. "'I'm no fighting man,' he said, "'and this sort of thing is getting on my nerves.' He went up to his hotel room to wash and change for dinner. He had donned his black tie and jacket in his room— when the last Boer shell of the day plunged through the roof and decapitated him. Rhodes sent a tribute to the press, and Kekovich gave his unlikely ally a full military funeral. Long Cecil spoke out over Labram's grave. The gun was still in action when Kimberley was relieved less than a week later. His wife and son received a heartfelt letter from Rhodes, also a week later. As I explained in the previous podcast, around 6,000 Americans fought for the British in the Anglo-Boer War, roughly 300 for the Boers. And Americans killed Americans on the South African battlefield, which is a fact not well known. While blood was being shed, however, moves were afoot in February 1901 to try and bring peace to the region. In the Cape, the Governor Milner was growing more and more worried that he would be forced to govern a region after the war full of bitterness as the concentration camps began filling with women and children who began dying almost as quickly. Lord Kitchener, too, was weary of riding back and forth across the dusty felt of South Africa, chasing after General Louis Botha, General Christian de Witt and General Coeur de la Rey, amongst others. As Thomas Pakenham described in his book on the Boer War, Kitchener then called up Martinus Pretorius from retirement. Indeed, it seemed almost from the grave at the age of 81. As we know, his father had given the capital of the Transvaal Republic its name, Pretoria, and Martinus himself had served as president before Kruger. But Pretorius was sent packing by both Louis Butter and Skalkberger, who was the acting president with Kruger, now exiled in Holland. The breakthrough came in late February – when Louis Boerter's own wife, Annie, wrote a letter to her husband saying that Kitchener was interested in peace talks. Kitchener, to his credit, didn't lie in his letter. He wrote that the annexation of the two Boer republics by the British Empire was non-negotiable. But everything else was on the table. There was the major issue of black South Africans, about whom Kitchener had already sought legal advice through the communication channels in London. But what shocked and politicised blacks fighting for Britain at that moment was Kitchener wanted to extend the laws which governed black South Africans in the free state throughout the territory. This was in effect part of what the apartheid government would eventually institute, including special passes that blacks would have to carry, a limit on movement and the identity of second-class citizens with neither property nor voting rights. The horror amongst the black intellectual class at this moment was complete and led directly to radicalization and ultimately the formation of the African National Congress, which rules South Africa today. In 1901, Kitchener wrote, I believe these laws were very good. Secondly, he wanted compensation paid to the Boers for damage to their property, something he was perfecting at that very moment with his farm-burning campaign. I have little doubt that this could be arranged by making the mines pay for it. A million would go a long way to putting matters right, and when the rand is working, they turn out two millions a week, he wrote. Of course, he was sorely misled about how capitalism and particularly international finance works. The mines were owned by British financiers who were not inclined to pay the Boers a cent, let alone black mine workers' reasonable salaries. And thirdly, and here he was really out on a limb, he wanted to offer amnesty to all Boers in the republics, as well as the Afrikaners from the Cape and Natal colonies who had taken up arms on the side of the folk against the British flag. Kitchener and Boerter met on the last day of February 1901 at a railway station in Bloemfontein where the negotiations between the British and Boers had failed before the start of the war. That was not a good omen for what was going to take place this time. Kitchener's other big problem was Lord Milner, the governor of the Cape. He had travelled up from Cape Town and held talks with Kitchener a week before the Boerter meeting. Milner was Dead set against allowing amnesty for the Afrikaners, who came from the Cape and Natal to fight with their comrades from the Free State and Transvaal. Milner was also a stickler for detail, and finally Kitchener was forced to extend his original three-point plan into a ten-point plan, which he duly telegraphed off to London for permission. Kitchener laid out the new plan, which included there would be a general amnesty for a bona fide act of war, but instead of amnesty for the colonial Boers, they would be disenfranchised, not allowed to vote, and property confiscated. English and Afrikaans would be taught in all schools, and both languages used in courts. Legal debts to the Boer republics would be paid, not more than a million pounds. Farmers would get cash for horses lost in the war, and burghers could keep their rifles pending certain processes. However, the point about black South Africans, where Kitchener believed they should not get the vote, nor any sort of legal franchise, horrified London. They were also totally against the amnesty. Their reply was duly telegraphed back to Kitchener, and his first point was rebuffed. A win for Lord Milner. However, both were told that black civil rights must somehow be included in any agreement with the Boers. London wanted land rights and limited suffrage for blacks, which already existed in the Cape Colony. Joseph Chamberlain was very specific in his letter to Kitchener, writing We cannot consent to purchase a shameful peace by leaving the coloured population in the position which they stood before the war, with not even the ordinary civil rights which the government of the Cape Colony has long conceded to them. Kitchener duly delivered the watered-down plan to Boerter, who said immediately that it would be hard to sell this agreement to the Boers. Then but has sat down with his senior officers and political leaders to discuss their response. Meanwhile, Kitchener was busy. Unlike Milner, who was regarded as generally lazy and somewhat of a bohemian, Kitchener was tall with piercing blue eyes that appeared to gaze through you like an idol. He arrived at work at 6 a.m., Galloped with his men before lunch, wrote dozens of letters and notes a day, and was eyeing his prize, which was not just peace in South Africa. No, this was merely a stepping stone to his main goal, to become Viceroy of India. A lot rode on Bhuta's response, and it wasn't just the deaths of thousands of civilians in English concentration camps or the ongoing war. Kitchener needed success and peace quickly, but he could see his life's ambition ebbing away with each month he was trapped in South Africa. Worse, the previous few months had seen both British and, surprisingly, Boer victories, which had sapped London's nerve. Kitchener was becoming more and more violent in response, thus his scorched earth policy and drives to capture De Vette, Boerter and others. I'll return to the negotiations in the next podcast as they resume on the 7th of March. Meanwhile, In the Northern Cape, General Christian de Wet was squeezed against the Orange River by at least 10,000 British soldiers and was in a real pickle once more. In the last six months, he'd wriggled out of many confrontations, including somehow climbing a sheer Magallisburg cliff and bringing hundreds of Boers to safety. Now he had 2,000 men with him, and worse, the President of the Free State was riding in his commando. They were locked into an area near Hopetown in the semi-desert wilderness of the northern Karoo. When we last left the vet two podcasts ago, he'd just heard his wagons being blown up that had been stuck in a swamp. It may be semi-desert, but in summer wetlands formed and he'd managed to evade the British by driving his men through the middle of one of these wetlands. But his food and ammunition were left behind in the wagons, which the British destroyed. Afterwards, General Free and around a 100 men, who tried to move the wagons, fled south and managed to cross the railway bridge back into the Free State at Da'ar. I now proceeded to the west of Hopetown in the direction of Stradenbach, he writes. The following day, the English were again on our heels in greater numbers than ever and advancing more speedily than before. I was obliged to engage their vanguard for nearly the whole day. With the English snapping at his heels, the quick-thinking de was forced to think, at his quickest. His commander managed to make it around 18 kilometers northwest of Stradenberg, where he left Commandant Hasbrook with 300 men and orders to slow the enemy down. Things were desperate for de Wett. Most of his men were now on foot because their horses had died or were too exhausted to continue. He was a bit like a cornered line, and he wrote, I might I explain to the uninitiated our methods of checking the advance of the enemy. Haasbrook and his 300 men had the last strong horses, and they sought out rising land or copies. When the pursuing British saw them, they would bring up their guns, usually placed in the middle of the column, which would then bombard the ridge. The burghers hiding behind the ridge would quietly withdraw out of sight. But the English would continue bombarding the hill, he wrote, and here you can almost hear a chuckle, and would send flanky parties to the left and right and sometimes... It would take the English several hours before they could make sure there were no boers behind their eyes. But it was no laughing matter. He was being harried in the way he had harried the British for a year and they were determined to catch him, indulging in what was known as the Great De Hunt. Commandant Hasbrook was doing a good job holding the enemy in check while De and his now less than mobile men, made it to a small summer lake called Froban. A day later, They were still on the move near the Brak Rafir, close to its confluence with the mighty Orange River. The vet knew he was literally up against it. The summer rains had led to the Orange River bursting its banks in places, and South Africa's most potent river was not fordable, not even by the best swimmers. This region is not known for its grand rivers, but when those it has swell during summer, they are powerful beasts not to be trifled with. As a journalist, I've covered Orange River floods. "'Sometimes the river will grow from 200 metres wide "'to two kilometres wide "'and stay like that for days or even weeks.' Tibet was trapped. "'The English were approaching. "'What was he to do?' "'There was absolutely no chance of getting across,' he admits. "'The best of swimmers would have been helpless "'in that swollen torrent "'which rushed down the Orange River, "'its great waves roaring like a tempestuous sea. "'It was two hours before sunset,' and things were about to get worse. Commandant Hasbrook reported the English were now rapidly approaching. De didn't know which way to go. To the north, east, and west, the Brach and Orange rivers flooded, and the English were to the south, so he decided to keep heading northwest towards the confluence towards the Orange River, 12 kilometers away. But he managed to hide his men from the English because a long ridge lay between them. This bought him some time. My plan was to get behind this ridge and to march under its shelter until darkness came, then proceeding along the Orange River to attack the enemy in the rear. Of course, this was a gamble. The English were close, nine miles or so. He asked President Stain what he should do, and the leader merely said, General, do as you think best. For some reason, the British did not send men to view the landscape from the high ridge. This meant, by nightfall, they had still not seen their quarry. That night, there was no moon, and the Boers then turned 180 degrees to move south, parallel to the British column. They marched all night until the next morning when De Witt writes, We were not only out of sight, but a good nine or ten miles behind the enemy, who were marching on, fully expecting to corner us between the two rivers. But De Wet was suffering mentally as well as physically. He had failed to invade the Cape where he was told rebel Afrikaners were awaiting his arrival to rise up and join the war against the English. So on the 20th February, he formally gave up the idea and turned looking for a ford to escape back to the Free State. The flooding river had begun to subside. Eventually, they found a small boat that held 12 men at a time, and by the evening of the 22nd February, 200 men had made it across to safety. Unfortunately, one man called Van der Merwe drowned trying to swim. Then he received another shock, the English were even close at hand, and once more his exhausted men were forced to move. They found broken ground and hid, zigzagging, and then he lost his last Maxim Nordenfeld pom-pom, as well as all the cattle, and he had no dynamite to destroy the gun. The 23rd February is also the day of commemoration of the independence of the Free State, and De Wet was in deep anguish, of all days to lose his last proper heavy weapon. The 23rd February, 1901, the 47th anniversary of the Orange Free State had been a disastrous day for us, indeed, he groaned. De Witt ordered the commander to break up into smaller groups. His men hid in bushes near Hopetown as the British marched past, the once glorious commander now hiding like fugitives in their own territory. They hadn't eaten in 48 hours. Eventually they found a few sheep, killed them, boiled the meat, ate, slept. There were light moments in the next few days as they continued to evade capture, including one involving a naked, David henop and a friend. After sending the two across the Zandrift River, which was flooding but not as powerfully as the orange, he realised they'd probably drown trying to return and Debet says, All thought of their return was out of the question. They had risked their lives in crossing, and I gave them orders from my side of the river not to attempt the passage back. But they had uh, not a stitch of clothing on them, for they had stripped themselves before entering the water. In this state, they were obliged to mount their horses and proceed, and this under a burning sun which scorched them with its rays. Apparently, they later secured secondhand clothes from a nearby farmhouse, but that's for next week. We'll call a halt now, with the vet still unsure whether he'd make it out of the trap laid so carefully by the British. Next week, we'll also hear how he blunders into a British camp alone, thinking they were Boers. What happened next is worth your ears, dear listeners. Thanks to Thomas, by the way. He's from Florida in the USA, and sent me a wonderful message about the Van der Vestasen family name. He's also a follower of Super Rugby, just out of interest. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. You can contact me on Twitter at Des Latham or send an email through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week then, goodbye.